I'm really glad to say I'm here tonight. In fact, at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere tonight. But anyway, um, I'm glad I'm not going to Six Flags tomorrow. I have a confession to make. I met my wife when I got out of the Marine Corps on December 2nd, and uh, I went to work in town getting ready to go to college. And uh, I went to church and met this nice young lady and uh, she said, why don't you come to the watch night service on Wednesday night? And I said, oh, I love that. We always had great watch night services. So I went there, and she was a date of my cousin, and uh, she was beating all the guys at ping pong. Said, this is not even baptistic. I'll get, I got in line, and she beat me about 15 games in a row. So I, I did some switching around, and I got to take her home and got acquainted with her. And I, after I knew her about three weeks, I asked her if she'd marry me. And she was a little hesitant to jump off that bridge that soon, you know. But she said, I'll let you know. Well, anyway, I went on to Texas to school. I went to engineering school over in Longview. And she went over to Omaha to Bible College. And so that summer, I came back, and we were going to get a little better acquainted. And so we happened to go somewhere. I don't remember where it was, but there was a Ferris wheel. And I had had a bad experience on a Ferris wheel. I, I was... I went, I don't know where I was, but I went somewhere and it was one of those double Ferris wheels where the top turns and the bottom turns and the whole thing spins on a different axis. And uh, it looked like that little bar was all that was holding you in there and that bar looked like you could pick it up and take it off and you'd be in space someplace. And so I, I was not very happy about that. I spent the next half day underneath a truck trying to rest and get my brains back together. So my, when I took my wife to be to this, um, it wasn't Six Flags, it was something like that. And she said, oh, I've always wanted to go on a Ferris wheel. I said, I don't want to go on a Ferris wheel. <laughs> and she said, come on, you, let you, you, you do anything, you'd go on a Ferris wheel. I said, no, I'm not going to go on a Ferris wheel. She said, well, I'll tell you what, if, you go on the fer if you'll take me on the Ferris wheel, I'll marry you. So I said, well, it wouldn't do much good because I'll be dead. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, I caved in. We've been married 61 years, and she's still holds that over my head. If you don't do this, I won't marry, well, it's too late, lady. You, you, you already got me. Well, it's, it's kind of fun to come in to a group like this and see how things go. I got here a little bit early. I knew the traffic might be bad, so I was here a little bit early. There were some nice boys in here talking and visiting, having a good time. And there were some girls out there. They kept looking around. They'd look in here, and then they'd go out and look out the door, like, is this all you have for us, Lord? And so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I kind of got a feel for the place, and uh, we, we enjoy it here. We love coming here to church, and we hope that the Lord will make it possible we can come here permanently. We're here permanent now, but it's temporary. We don't know where we'll be tomorrow because we gave our lives to the Lord to do what he wants with them, and he's given us some amazing moves. And uh, I, I joined the Marine Corps so I could see the world. I got stationed in North Carolina and saw North Carolina. That was about all. Uh, then I gave my life to the Lord to uh, be a pastor, and I've been all over the world since then. So uh, the law of unintended consequences. You become a pastor, and God may put you anywhere, all over. Well, anyway, um, oh, yeah, I did, I did hear a story recently about a boy that got tired of the same, same old thing all the time. You guys ever have a problem with that? Same old thing all the time. So he went to the barber shop. And uh, he said to the barber, I want to change my hairstyle. He said, what do you want to do? 
He said, well, I want you to cut apart right from the top of this ear over to the top of this ear and comb all this hair forward and all that hair backward. So the barber said, you know what, you're sure that's what you want to do? He said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want it different. So he did that. He put a part in the middle, combed all up front and all the back. He came back a week later and he said, I want to change it. He said, what's the matter? Don't you like it? Well, he said, I like it okay, but people keep whispering in my nose. So that's all right. <laughs> Pastor Jeremy will explain that to you. But anyway. Uh, so I'd like to... There's a guy over there. One of those. One of them got it over there. Yeah. It, it's like. It's like the, a guy was known to be able to tell good jokes, and he would tell these great jokes, and, and see people would challenge him. And he'd say, "Hey, I can tell jokes that make walnuts fall out of trees." And so he said, "Oh, I don't believe that. Let's go out and try that." So he went out and he told these jokes, and the trees didn't do anything. Nothing. Went back the next day, and there were walnuts all over the ground. He said, what happened? He said, well, they were English walnuts. So <laughs> anyway, I'd like to share something tonight about the will of God. I think some of you have been talking about this. You've been doing some studying in that area. And uh, I've had some experience in that myself. In fact, uh, I didn't always pray about things like that. In fact, many times I should have and I didn't. But I remember uh, I grew up during World War II live for the day I could fly my own plane and shoot my own tanks and all that stuff. And so when I got old enough to join, the, the, I joined the Marine Corps and uh, so I could see the world and do all those things. And I didn't ask God about it, but uh, God used that in my life. And then I was stationed near a well-known Bible college and would never go there because I was afraid Lord, the Lord might talk to me about going there. But uh, so I tried to run it my way, and if you've ever tried that, you know it doesn't work very well. So uh, eventually, uh, after 10 years in engineering and business, uh, I was up in the mountains in Montana. I was managing a log skitter company, and I started some Bible studies up in the mountains. And some of these people up there were, would come to those, those, and once a month they'd have a a missionary come in and show a Christian film. And so I was there, and the missionary said to me one time, he said, uh, Pastor Crane, would you lead in prayer? I said, well, I can lead in prayer, but I'm not a pastor. He said, well, these people think you are. And God began to use that in my life and in my wife's life to, to say, maybe we're in the wrong field. Maybe we ought to consider getting trained so we know what a pastor does, because I was at the point I didn't know what I was doing. So we went to seminary and uh, began to learn some things. God put us into the pastorate. We had a wonderful ministry in northern Minnesota where the temperature gets down to 50 below in the winter. And that so badly froze me out, I moved down here where it gets to 150 in the summer. So I uh, got the ice thawed out. The, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the will of God because there is something we miss sometimes. You know, I believe, and I think you do too, that we ought to pray and ask God about his will if they were going to do any kind of an activity. Now, I've already prayed about Six Flags, and I ain't going there. So I, the Lord told me I don't, I don't have to go. So, uh, but uh, he may tell you differently. But the point is, it's, it's right to pray about an activity. Do you think it's right to pray about a relationship? 
Is this a nice boy that I should get acquainted with or not? Uh, it could be that um, a purchase, maybe some of you are thinking about buying a new car. You pray about that first, or an old car like I do, pray about that too. Or uh, about marriage, you pray about that. And sometimes uh, as we look back, my wife and I have said, wow, this is amazing. God has given us 61 years and we're still speaking and we, we don't fight and we love it and we wouldn't have it any different. But the point was back when we met each other, we began to pray about God putting us together. And I remember begging God to let me have this wonderful girl for my wife. And uh, God and I had some long visits about that. Well, anyway, those are things that we want to pray about, of course. But um, I believe there is a foundation stone in this whole will of God area. And you really need to go there to start. So when we pray, we pray from that foundation. So let me look at that. Uh, what is this foundation? Well, I want to take a trip tonight, a quick, a quick trip, and, uh, and, and make four stops on the way. The first stop would be Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And it says, uh, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him, male and female created he them. Now in the context, you see God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And then it says, after that context, it says, let's put him in charge of the world. He will rule this planet in our place. And so uh, he created man in his own image. Now that's chapter one. And in chapter one, we get kind of an idea about what he was asking uh, Noah or, or, or Adam to do. You go from day to day through there and there was a huge creation. God built a tremendous platform for placing man on this earth. It wasn't just up and did something. He had a tremendous platform together. And if you ever had a chance to look at the uh, planetarium uh, it, at uh, Answers of Genesis, you'll see the size and the distance and the precision of, each, of the planetary systems. And it's just a wonderful thing. And God put it all there for us. And he put man in charge of all the living things on this earth. And so, um, God said, let's make man in our image. I think that we need to just stop a second and talk about what God is like. You see, God is one personality presenting himself in th to us, revealing himself to us in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Israel uh, tends to forget that, but they're Shema. Their, their uh, anchor verse is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, or one Lord. And people will say, see, the Jews were taught that God was one, not three. But you know, the, the Hebrew language has a, a plural that we don't recognize. In, in fact, if they say, I want uh, a hand of bananas, they, they grow bananas in Israel. But they have a, a plural form for the word where we have a singular, and then we put an S on the end and make it plural. But this plural form it works like this. We'll say a dozen eggs. They will have a verb that, or a word that says uh, plural eggs. And, and so the word is, uh, uh, the word is in, in Hebrew indicating that God is a unity, but he has a plural 
uh, presentation. And so that's he, the Hebrew language does that with a lot of things, but here's where it really works. And so God being three-part uh, person, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, let's make man in our image. So what does that mean? I believe it meant that he made Adam and Eve in his image as three-part beings. Now, what is the parts? What are the parts? Well, the first part is the soul. We see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God created Adam, breathed into his life, and Adam became a living soul. Now, uh, the soul is the real essence of man. Now, we get a body along with that, and the body is that d device by which we relate to the world around us, by the, which we live in this, in this world. And then there's the spirit of man, and that spirit is that by which we relate to God himself. And so man was complete in that sense. And uh, so uh, li we're like God and we're like no other creature. God made all the creatures and they operate on the basis of what we call instinct. They do what they do because that's what they're programmed to do. They do not have a sense of moral rightness or wrongness. We do. God put in us a sense of moral right and wrong in all of our decisions. And that's why it's appropriate to pray and get his input when we think we want to do something. And so um, uh, man is to have the crea creator's rule over the universe. Uh, so we would rule in, in, in uh, God's place. And that required constant fellowship. You see, God met with Adam and Eve in the morning and they would talk about the day and we'd meet the next morning and it was a time of great fellowship. So no angel, no animal could have that kind of a relationship. Only Adam and Eve, the father and mother of our race, had that kind of a relationship. Now as they uh, procreated, they procreated us and we have that relationship with God. We have the ability to relate to God. But something happened and we'll go that to the second stop. There was a test for management, and God gave them a test, and it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And uh, tests for management aren't unusual. I remember after I graduated from college, I had my brand new engineering degree, and I went to work for General Electric Company over in Tyler, Texas. And General Electric Company said, you have the kind of degree we want, and we want to put you into the management program. and." Uh, we will bring you through various parts of the plant, the company, and develop you to be one of, the, of our leaders. Well, I was quite honored at that. And so uh, I was in those programs. And it, it once a month, a, a vice president of General Electric Company would come to town. And he would meet on Sunday, Sunday evening, with one of the managers. And uh, they would have a happy hour where they served liquor. And uh, the rest of us were supposed to take our turns in serving and I always was able to fall, palm that off or farm that off to somebody else so I didn't have to do that. And I didn't go to those meetings. And so one day my boss called me in and said, now Bob, uh, I, I see you're not coming to the meetings when the vice president comes out. And if you're going to be uh, going anywhere with General Electric Company, you need to come and get involved with this and meet the presidents and be in the happy hour and take your turn in serving. And uh, it kind of shocked me a little bit because I wanted to be in church on Sunday evening. I wanted to be in choir practice in the early part of the church evening and sing in the choir and do all those wonderful things. My favorite time of the week is Sunday night services. And so uh, 
I began to pray about this. I began to talk to God about this. And in the course of two years, God moved us away from GE to out to Northwest Montana where we could be in ministry there. But uh, the, it came to pass or it came to a head when the management requirement was this activity. And I said, no, I'm not going there. Now, GE is a wonderful company. They have a wonderful training program. I learned a lot of wonderful things there. And I had a good time, and they would promote me about every little while. It was, it was a great experience. But I didn't like the price. And so I said, I'm going to flunk the test. Because that's what it was. It was a test of management. Would you or will you get, uh, do this? And so in chapter th uh, 2, man becomes a living soul. And uh, then in verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. Now the Hebrew there is really saying a little bit different than that. It says, dying, thou shalt die. Now it's translated various ways into the English and I suppose the Spanish as well. But I think the point is, there was a death sentence for, for failing the test in management. And the death sentence works like this. The word dying indicates what was going to happen to the body. You know, the human body is designed to live forever. We're designed for the cells to all replace themselves every seven years. And we're designed to live forever without dying. But at the point they were going to sin, if they would sin, at that point, they would begin to die. And so we know that as when we're born, we begin the death process. And some make it five years, some 10, some 50, some 84, and some 84 in one hour. But anyway, we're all on the way. We're all on the way to the end. Now that's the dying. But then it says, thou shalt surely die. And I believe that's talking about the spiritual death because what happened was the human spirit suddenly stopped. And they discovered something. They looked at their bodies and they were naked. Now I think they, personally I believe, that there was an aura of holiness or righteousness surrounding the human body. And so the animals had fur and hair and all, scales and all that, but I believe man was clothed in robes of righteousness. And I, you see that over in Revelation 19. But uh, they were, it was gone, it was gone. And the spirit was dead because they were hiding from God, trying to make clothes out of fig leaves. And I don't know if you ever tried to sew fig leaves together, but they're pretty fragile. and. Uh, uh, you, you wouldn't want to try it, but they were trying it. And God comes looking for them. That speaks of his grace. But the point is, there was an instantaneous death of the human spirit. It is, rever is revocable, it is reversible because of the grace of God. And I want to go into that just a second. Man became a living soul. And uh, the test was this. Will man obey me? Can I trust him with this planet? Can I trust him with all the animals and all the things that he will enjoy? Can I trust him to have fellowship with me and to love me supremely? And Adam and Eve failed that test. They uh, were deceived. Eve was deceived by a talking snake. Some people say, I can't believe there was a talking snake. I'm not, I would not be surprised to learn that all the animals could communicate with Adam and Eve. Wouldn't be surprised at all. But that was lost in the fall of man. So the third stop is this, and I want to move quickly because uh, I don't want you to be late to the uh, Six Flags tomorrow. 
All right. The third stop is this. Genesis 3.16, they failed the test. Satan came and, and said, you know, really, you're believing a lie. God is just pulling a trick on you, and, and God doesn't really mean that you'll die if you eat this fruit. It's just a simple piece of fruit. And it was a simple test. It was a very simple test, and God's tests usually are quite simple. And so they uh, took of the fruit. Eve gave it to Adam, and he took of it. I don't know. It's, it's worth considering that he do this because he lost Eve, and he would never have her again if, he, if she went that way and he went this way. Or was he just dumb as she was and walked into this and, and did it? I don't know. But the fact is they both sinned, and by that we became sinners. And when we became sinners, we suffered the same deaths that they did. And I'll get to that in a minute. But they, uh, they believed a lie. They were condemned to a life of misery and hard labor and death. The death of the body was gradual but final. The death of the spirit was immediate and reversible by the God's grace. So the immediate effect, immediate effect was toil, pain, thorns, hard labor, loss of their covering, and hiding from God. So God restored Adam and Eve. That was his grace. God did that for them. Now, what did he do? He killed two animals, or he killed some animals, and took their skins and made clothes to cover Adam and Eve. And uh, it's established a principle that you'll find throughout the scriptures. It, that principle is this, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so that became a principle which even took the Savior to the cross because he went there for our sins. But uh, the, uh, God killed the animals, put skins on their bodies. He made the spirit alive because they were now able to communicate with him again. And uh, so now he, in fact, Genesis 3.16 gives me the idea that they believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness and I think that's found over in Genesis chapter 4. It's proved over there when Eve was told in Genesis 3.15 that she would have a son who would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would crush or bruise his heel. And I think she believed God and was, uh, I think she was mistaken. Sometimes we are, but she believed God and that was right. But she had a son over in, in Genesis chapter 4 and she said, if I remember exactly how the Hebrew puts that, she said, I have begotten a man, even the Lord. So it seems that she believed that the Messiah had come in the first generation. While she was a lot of generations wrong about that, but she knew that God was gonna send a savior and that's what she believed. So the spirit was made alive. Now, I want to go to the fourth stop here and look at something. We see over in the New Testament uh, the fallout from all of this. Of course, the, the whole book of the Bible, all the books of the Bible are really following the track of this sin and what it did to the race. It, was, it ruined the race. But over in, uh, Genesis, or in John chapter 3, we find a man by the name of Nicodemus. And he was a leader in the Jewish nation. He was a religious man. And he came to Jesus, he sneaked in at night because he didn't want to be seen going to this wild rabbi. And he said, how can a man enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus said this, and it shocked him to his socks. He said, you must be born again. He said, whoa, wait a minute. How can a full grown man become a little tiny baby and be born again? And Jesus said, there is a birth 
from water, that would be the natural birth, and there is a spiritual birth, and unless you have both, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so he is teaching us and Nicodemus that there must be a new birth. They call it being born again. You know, that used to be a very popular phrase. And back in about 1950, along there, there was an evangelist named Billy Graham. And he said a lot about being born again, and a lot of people began to mock Christians about being born again and all this. And I thought about this lately because I, ha I don't hear that a lot anymore. I don't hear it much. But it used to be a very prevalent idea. So I went back and began to do some research why. And, and the fact is, we are dead. Without Jesus Christ, we are dead. We must be reborn spiritually in order to be able to relate to God. That's that part that they lost when they sinned in the garden. So, how can I enter the kingdom of God? You must be born again. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it starts off saying, You who were dead in trespasses and sins, then it skips some verses and it says, shall be made or are made alive in Jesus Christ. So we were dead in trespasses and sin. That means the human spirit was dead. I, some writer described it this way. I said, if you could see spiritually into every heart, you'd see a little gray thing laying there dead. But when Jesus Christ comes in, he makes it live. And you have a living spirit of God by which you can, by which you can relate to him. <clears throat> that answers some things for me. I've known some people that were brilliant people. They knew their Bible. There, there are some of them are well-known evangelists and leaders in, in the U.S. and Canada. Brilliant people, but were they saved? Not by a long shot. They didn't believe anything that I believe about God and about His Word, but they could quote it to you. What was the problem? They had never been born again. They had no ability to relate to God. Now, if you look at our world today, Almost the whole world is without ability to relate to God. I was teaching in China to house church pastors. And uh, it, it happened, and this was before my time, but in 1949, the communists took over China, kicked all the missionaries out, and the missionaries said there's only 100 Christians in China. So the history of China will be without the Christian church. There won't be a church because there's only 100. They can't survive. So the British and American missionaries all left. And when I was over there about 15 years ago, it, the estimate was 100 million Chinese Christians are there in China today. And the government promised to stamp it out. But how do you stamp out a house church movement which works like this? One of the guys in one of my classes was a policeman. And his job was to find house churches and lock up the pastors, maybe whip them and beat them and burn all the books and hymnals and tear down the, the church building. And somebody got to him with the gospel. So when I met him, he was in the class. He'd been saved for two years. He had three house churches. And what they would do, they'd have a house church. When it got full, they'd go to another house. They'd have another house church. And some of those guys had three and four churches. And who knows, they didn't keep records, they didn't take names because they didn't want the government to know. In fact, we couldn't even show pictures of them. So uh, here's the point. How do you, how do you give a census? How do you do a census on that kind of a situation? They're multiplying so fast you can't even believe it. I just saw something this morning in a conference 
uh, Iran in 1979 when they kicked the, uh, captured all the Americans in the American embassy. It said there were 500 believers in Iran at that time, Christian believers, born again. Today, the estimate is 10 million Christians in Iran. And the numbers keep shrinking because the Christians keep leaving, but then they grow because people get saved. And so, what am I saying? I'm saying the whole world lies in this desperate darkness of spiritual death, and they're desperately waiting for God to send someone to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, they become new creatures in him, they are born again. But there's one more thing, and I must mention it because I preached this in the Philippines uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and uh, it was hot there. I don't know, I'm sure that uh, it's been hot there before, but it was then. And uh, the church was on the third floor of a warehouse, and it was so hot that night, the pastor said, let's go up on the roof. There's no lights up there. Carry a chair and take your cell phone for light to get up on the roof. I was sure somebody would walk off the edge. I was hoping it wouldn't be me. But anyway, we got up there and I, was, I didn't have my notes on my cell phone. That was dumb in the first place. I should have had my notes on my cell phone, but I didn't. But I'm using it and a lady said, I have a question, okay. When a person sins today, do they die again? Oh, I said, no, we left out something very important. When a person gets saved today, they become a new creature, but God gives them the Holy Spirit to indwell them permanently and interact with the human spirit so they have a relationship with God. That, my friends, is the bedrock of the whole issue of praying for God's will. That's the bedrock. Now, there's a lot of things we can pray about, a lot of things God can talk to us about, a lot of things God can teach us. But unless we are willing to be trustworthy, to love him supremely, and walk with him uh, in faith, then we miss, we miss the whole point. And so we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit indwelling. And uh, the Bible, the New Testament makes it clear, I believe it's in, 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 uh, in uh, Romans, that uh, the Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment on our eternal state with God. Now, what is that? If you go to buy a house, anybody here ever buy a house? Probably some of you have. The first thing you do is give somebody $500 and say, I want this, here's my earnest money or my down payment. And then if you don't buy it and you play the game right, you get your money back. But if you do buy it, that money goes on to the, toward the price. And so that's called earnest money or a down payment. Now, this is the term that God uses. He gave us his Holy Spirit to indwell us and interact with our spirit that we should be like the sons of God. What a blessing. We have something that the rest of the world doesn't have. Now, are we nice, nicer than they are? No. Are we better than they are? No. Are we better off than they are? Yes, abundantly better off than the world. And the world is waiting for someone to come with that message. Someone to come. Well, none of us walked off the house that night or off the roof. We all got back safely as far as I could tell. But the point is this. God has a wonderful plan for our lives. I had no clue as to his plan until I, re until I received Christ as Savior. And then that all began to fall into place. 
because the Holy Spirit was able to talk to my spirit and tell him what God wants and teach, him, teach me something.